Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, an award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. We're doing something a little bit different this week. It has been a busy week. The release of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom is out there this week. And transparently, we invited some people from Nintendo onto the show and didn't get a response. I don't think they quite like us that much, which is fine. I'm not going to sit here and complain. We had a whole episode with Aiden and Slime a few months ago about Nintendo. uh, We had Alan Benet on here. Yeah, it's we're... We're probably not their favorite, and that's okay. Yeah. We don't have to be their cup of tea. This is not going to be us complaining about it, but more so just talking, I think, broadly about access journalism, and especially in the context of what's been going on with Kotaku. And, you know, I want to start, and I guess also Prime's here with me as well, because we're just going to do Howdy. this episode by ourselves. Prime, how are you? I'm good. A little good. tired. It's been a, been a long week. Indeed. For me, too. I, like, went to bed at, like... 9 30 last night and yeah now up and up bright and shiny on friday morning but nonetheless wanted to talk about kotaku you know i want to make a little slight disclosure at the beginning of this pod because kotaku is like tried to ruin my livelihood and i actually don't like hold that as much against them as you might think i do for a little bit of context without rehashing the entire thing because i think it's fairly irrelevant in 2018, I reported on a, an Overwatch League player who had been using homophobic language on his stream um, literally like a week or so after XQC, then his teammate, another professional Overwatch League player, had used similar language and was banned indefinitely from the Overwatch League and was not allowed to compete and ultimately retired and walked away. And Kotaku, actually reporters that I knew there, found tweets that where I had used similar language as a teenager between the ages of 13 and 17, not hatefully, but it doesn't matter because it was on the internet and I shouldn't be using them. And I'm not trying to absolve myself from the use of that language, but found where I'd used similar language towards friends uh, on Twitter and basically blasted it out there and consciously made the decision to not include my age and how old I was. People that knew me in the industry at that time, I had like just turned 21 years old. You do the math based on the tweets and see what the dates are. You get to, you know, between 13 to 17 years old. And the TLDR of the situation is I was coming up on a contract renewal at ESPN, and there was a very high likelihood when that came out that I was not going to get one. And I did. I'm very thankful that the people at ESPN understood that that was not representative of my character at the time. But, you know, made me think very differently about Kotaku for a very long time. The two reporters that worked on that story don't work there anymore. One of them and I have talked since, and uh, he was also a freelancer for ESPN Esports, so uh, was you know somebody that worked alongside me for a period of time. But I actually don't hold that against them much as a publication. I think my general thought on Kotaku broadly, before we dive into what their relationship with Nintendo has been like this week and kind of the public discourse around it, my general thought about Kotaku is that. If you're mad at everything, are you really mad at anything at all? There's a very specific writing style at that publication. Among the columnists in particular, the opinion writers and the people that write, not necessarily the original reporting. The original reporting is, for the most part, pretty straightforward. People like Ethan Gash and others, like it's not very opinionated. It doesn't have much of a voice. It's just, these are the facts, you know, here, look, right? And and there's been some really good reporting and you know, monumental reporting of that over the past couple of years that come to mind immediately. 
such as their reporting on the Cosby Room that a lot of the Blizzard employees organized during BlizzCon, where they were inviting impressionable young women up to the suite during BlizzCon and trying to get them drunk and, you know, make sexual advances, that that's really important reporting, and that's the best of Kotaku. But, you know, I think a lot of people in the gaming industry probably, in my opinion, wrongly, actually really dislike Kotaku. And it's partly because some of those other pieces, the voice is just completely antagonistic the entire time. Almost all the time, the voice is antagonistic. And we've seen a discourse, and this is what I want to dive into you, or dive in with you, Prime. We've seen a discourse this week around that in the context of their relationship with Nintendo. So earlier in the week, we saw Patricia Hernandez, their editor, come out and say that they had not been given access to Tears of the Kingdom for review embargo over the past few weeks. Almost every publication has. Uh, a lot of our friends in games media have been able to review Zelda Tears of the Kingdom and were able to go out to an in-person event where Nintendo demoed it for them in person. Kotaku was not. And there's some friction there between them, which Patricia covered on her Twitter. And the reaction was basically from a lot of the games or gaming audience was, well, fuck you guys. And personally, I don't like I don't understand Nintendo's opinion. I think that generally, generally that Nintendo is one of the companies in our space that is very controlling with what they show to the press. They're just very controlling in general. We've talked about it on this show before, how they handle their IP, the way that they deal with other people. And that seems to be the case here. They want to be able to dictate what Kotaku says and write, which is extremely anti-free press, and we support Kotaku to have the opinion that they want to have more broadly. Uh, I don't think that's a controversial statement to support the free press in America, but apparently it is. And then the second part of this this week, which we'll dive into, is that Tears of the Kingdom started to leak over the past two weeks all over the internet. There were, how it leaked, we're not exactly sure, but basically there were video clips all over social media and on various different websites that showed you very crucial gameplay moments where you could see this game that came out today, Friday, that we are recording this episode, but weeks in advance. And Kotaku did what I think, if it wasn't them, and it was another media outlet, would have done is not controversial, which is they reported on it. They reported on the leaks, and they wrote a piece that was basically, here's what we've learned from the leaks. Like, here's the biggest moments in the game, right? That obviously very spoiler heavy. Don't read the piece if you don't want spoilers for Tears of the Kingdom. But fair, and I want to give a little bit of context here. You know, embargoes are heavily used in gaming in a way that makes me deeply uncomfortable as someone who's broken thousands of stories on various different companies over the years. You know, it is to prevent you from being the messenger as the free press and to garner the positive coverage short term. And specifically... In the case of companies like Nintendo and Microsoft and Sony, really the biggest companies here, they think, and they're probably right, that their voice is louder than the press when on release days like today. That Nintendo will be the primary messenger, even though 
every publication under the sun this morning hit publish on a bunch of tiers of the kingdom coverage, right? Nintendo will still be the loudest voice. And so by giving an embargo that you agree to where you will not publish something until a certain date, you are giving them power to be that loudest messenger. And that is very antithetical to the way that media and press should work broadly. And so in instances where I have been at companies that have agreed to embargo at dot esports, this was our policy at ESPN esports. This was our policy. One of my other colleagues would agree to the embargo. I would not. I'm a reporter. And in the event that I found out this information, not from them, but from other people ahead of the embargo, it was free game because I'm a reporter. That's my job. We wouldn't talk about the embargo. It was separated out into different channels, to different Trello boards that I didn't have visibility or access to. And if I got it, it was free game for me to publish. Nobody would correct me. I'd just get a basic edit. And we'd go. And that's it. That's, that's how that should work. I had an obligation to the audience to break news. That was my job. And in this case, that is exactly what Kotaku did. The leaks were already out there. They weren't breaking an embargo to leak Tears of the Kingdom footage. What they were doing was reporting on leaks that were already happening. You could go Google search or Twitter search and find those same leaks. A Kotaku reporter sat there and did that and then wrote a piece about it. And... What do you know? The response again was, fuck you guys. And it's been extremely loud and vitriolic. Yeah, man. You know, and it's with, just sad. With Kotaku, it's, there's a lot of things I want to kind of touch on here. The, the first being, I think that what you touched on earlier with, with kind of the, the nature of the opinion pieces on Kotaku, I, I think that's a general shifting of media tides. Like, we have, we have fully as a kind of uh, as a as a culture in in journalism and reporting we've understood and internalized this idea that rage drives clicks and so there is almost an incentive to to make content that is inherently kind of anger inducing mhm but that has very much a a vicious cycle to it because you are just breeding more and more of that anger and fury in media. And, and so as much as maybe five years ago it, it generated a lot of clicks, nowadays it, it doesn't go into the all press is good press type of, of bucket. Back right. then, yeah, you could, you could say all press is good press, we're getting tons of clicks, even if it's rage clicks those rage clicks are going to come and see the ads. They're going to see the, the inline ads. They're going to see the pop-ups, whatever. And so that, that monetization made sense. Nowadays, is it? We have so many ad blockers. We have, we have so many ways to get around it. And, and most people, they'll see the headline on Twitter and then write an angry comment generating negative feedback on, the, on Twitter, on that thread, but never going and clicking through. Even if the piece itself has a lot of value to it, they'll see the one headline and, and react to it and move on. And I think that it's it's very much a an aspect of of kind of the internet culture of reporting, which is which is extremely negative. That aside, yeah, the embargo is for the full game. Full stop. If you find if there is a leak, that is a different. That is an entirely different story. Yep. 
if like I think I think the the most notable case of this in in my mind do you remember when X-Men Origins Wolverine came out? Yes. And the full movie prior to the CGI was leaked. Yep. And there were tons of articles about it. That drove more people to watch it when it actually came out. As much as in the, the immediate moment that happened, that is a nightmare for the company. That is an absolute nightmare because suddenly this thing that people are going to have to pay to see is technically available. Because of the discussion around it, more people watched it in its complete form. I'm, I'm one of those people. I mean, I was, in, I was probably like a, a freshman or a sophomore in high school when that came out. I remember watching that movie without CGI and the, the comedy of it and the, the discourse around how that happened drove me to watch it in theaters. On an individual basis, on an anecdotal basis, that's not worth a lot, but all of us add up. All of those, those $14 tickets add up. The movie may not have, have done massively well, but in the same way that you know, the release into a theater is sort of the embargo for the public. The leak, which doesn't abide by those, those kind of public embargo ideas, the leak drove a lot of people in the public to go see it. That likely wouldn't have, have taken the effort to go watch it. And I think the same is true of this. Realistically, if, if the leak comes out and, and people are reporting on basically how good the game is, on, on the quality of the game, what, what's, what's interesting and innovative in the game, there are going to be a lot more people that, that are driven to play it when it actually comes out. Well, and I think generally people fall into two categories and you don't change consumer behavior, right? The, the PR thought, if you work at Goblin, the company that worked, or that reps Nintendo in PR, you're, what you're so worried about is that that leak is going to stop someone from buying the game, right? That they're just, or they're just going to watch the gameplay and they're not going to do it, right? But what we've seen, and The Last of Us is actually a very good recent example of this, by the way. What we have seen is there are going to always be people that buy the game, and there are going to always be people that watch gameplay. Even gameplay after the fact, post-embargo, right? People that go watch streamers or creators on YouTube and Twitch and other places play it. They just won't buy the game. I don't think you change, and I don't think a leak changes either of those outcomes. People are either going to play the game and want to experience it themselves, or they're not. And that's just going to happen, and I don't think a leak changes it. And I think really crucially, the reason I mentioned The Last of Us, before I throw it back to you, Prime, is The Last of Us is a great example of this. There were a lot of people that, when the show came out, did two things, right? And the show has very similar storyline to the game. And then they published, towards the end of the show's you know, first season run... They published The Last of Us Part 1 on PC, and there were a bunch of people that bought the game. Sales increased for The Last of Us during the show. A lot of people went and bought PS4s and the game, or they had a PS4 and they bought the game, or they bought the remastered version for the PS5, right? Like, all the sales numbers point up. The show helped it. It promoted it more, even though it is literally almost the same storyline, and you technically can watch the show without watching or playing the game. And then there were people that just went and watched gameplay 
like cuts, right? There's like a very famous cinematic cut of The Last of Us on YouTube that is The Last of Us Part One, but cinematic with all the cutscenes and the UI removed, right? Like, and it's just, it's almost like a movie, but it's the game. And one more thing before I throw back, I do want to say Kotaku does deserve some critique on one thing specifically here. And that was Luke Plunkett, their senior writer's tweet. His tweet was awful and stupid, and he should know better. And I think there was some unfair criticism, and there was some fair criticism on that tweet. For context of what the tweet is, you can go find it. Luke Plunkett's a senior writer at Kotaku, and he tweeted how I feel about publisher Blacklist. And it was a picture of a World War II fighter pilot with Japanese and Nazi Germany flags on the side of his plane as a kill counter of where he had bombed. Two things happened as a result of that. Again, one, I think the tweet's like super insensitive and stupid, right? Like, don't, just don't post it. There was no reason to post that tweet. Whatever, just shut up. It caused more controversy than needed. Two, though, a lot of people didn't know what that image was. And they just saw a Nazi, like they saw a swastika and went, holy shit, why is this guy posting a swastika? Fair, fair reaction, gut reaction. Obviously, the context here is his American fighter pilot. I'm pretty sure it was American. American fighter pilot that had these flags on the side of their plane. But he shouldn't have posted that. It was a stupid post. He deserved the backlash he got over it. Didn't deserve death threats. Nobody deserved death threats, etc. And obviously some people should have maybe, you know. There should be a little bit more nuance to every conversation. But it was a stupid tweet. He shouldn't have posted it. It was a stupid reaction to the bigger issue. And he just made Kotaku look worse. And where generally I think they were actually handling it pretty well and talking about it prior to that specific tweet. Yeah, so the the idea uh, just to get back onto the uh the way these the the ecosystem around every game and every media piece works, especially in gaming, everything outside of the game is marketing for the game. Full stop. Streaming is marketing for the game that the camp companies are getting for free. There have been a lot of games that a lot of people have gone on Twitch, seen maybe their favorite creator playing a game that they've never heard of, never seen, and then going and playing it themselves. Paying the money and getting into that ecosystem. Well, because that's the fun of games, right? It's not right. necessarily just the content. It's not like movies. This is why games is a bigger form of entertainment than movies and music. Movies and music are a passive experience. Watching television or film, you are not engaging. And we, whatever, like somebody's going to say, well, actually, Black Mirror. Yeah. No, shut up. That's not what we're talking about. The normal television or film experience is you experience something passively. You, your eyes are attuned to it. You are not actively doing anything. Same with music. You are listening to something passively. And I'm not deriding movies, music, or television as a lesser art form. They are not. They are extremely creative. We produce television here. We like doing it. This is fun. But also, that's the special thing about games. It's interactive. Not, and it's become more immersive to the point of what we've talked about with Troy Baker and others on this show over the past few months. Games are now immersive. So they have the same graphic fidelity or similar graphic fidelity as television. And film, right? They have really, really good audio. 
that you get to experience and you're pressing the buttons it is you know it is related to what you are doing the input that you are doing and that is what makes gaming so special as entertainment and so like sure you get some experience plot you know plot experience etc plot exposure when you are watching a streamer or a content creator play a game but but you are not getting the immersive experience yourself and that is extremely valuable so two things yeah obviously you you're not playing a movie you're not playing a show but the way in which we engage with the community or or kind of with other people other consumers of that media has changed like when i when i think of kind of the modern discourses around things it's it's twitter forums but those are all just evolutions of the water cooler yep this is this is the it's the exact same idea as like on a monday monday early afternoon people huddling around the water cooler talking about the show they watch on sunday did you see the game did you see mm-hmm. you know this episode of whatever the show and we have just sort of expanded that. And so th- I, I want to sort of push back on this idea that, that they are less, it's not that they're le- less engaging. Cause I think that there is still a, no, the a, right a, word is active. They are yeah. engaging, but they're, they're less active. They are right. They're passive but versus I, active. But I think this, this idea of like passive versus active, it, it's, it's the same as it is in basically any media where, you're going to have a good majority of all of the people who are passive viewers. They watch it. They might have a very minor conversation here or there about it, but they're, they're going to watch it and then move on. The active users are the ones who are going and, and having that water cooler discussion. The ones who are going online and having a discussion on a forum or, or, or replying in a thread on Twitter and, and staying engaged with it. And in gaming you get to add the step of playing. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, you have it. all of the rest. You, you retain everything else, but you get to add, did you play the game? Did you experience it yourself? Because I can have a conversation about games I haven't played, but have watched extensively. I, yep. I've done that about, about Smash Brothers. I've watched the game extensively. I'm trash at it. I've I have no expectation to be playing it at some serious level, so I can say like ah yes I understand the nuances of what happened like no 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 I'm I'm just gonna talk about kind of the macro. But if I played it, I would have another level of engagement where I could be an active participant in that space. You really the only kind of parallel to that in movies and and TV shows is just being someone who watches it again and again and again. Like, I can, I can have that level of deep conversation about John Wick. Why? <laughs> because I've, I've watched all of those movies literally dozens of times. And so there's, there's a level of engagement that's almost like me playing the game that would have been John Wick. My point, I think, was mostly just that, like, you're you're doing when you're playing a game, unlike movies and TV and music, you're like 
physically doing something, physically active. You were like, and, and, and to me at least, especially games like The Last of Us, Jedi Fallen Order, and Survivor, like a lot of these like more recent games that are very immersive and they've kind of, you know, they've taken advantage of the PS4, the Spider-Man games on, on PlayStation as well. They've taken advantage of the PS4 and the PS5 and the Xbox One and Xbox Series series consoles. The ability for them to have higher graphic fidelity and more engagement. Like I, you know, I I think very fondly of more retro games. It's weird, still weird for me to call like PS3, Xbox, Xbox 360 generation retro. Oh, but like, feel you know what I mean? I, I remember a lot of those games too, especially rhythm games, sports games, the, you know, like, because those there's a there's a level of hype to those regardless of graphic fidelity that's really exciting but i remember more frequently of the past decade the more recent generation games that are graphically immersive i remember it a lot because i'm doing something my like fingers are actually moving and they are the it's changing the output on the screen right that's what i mean by active that and that's just not something you can really do on in movies television and music and i think like that is what makes games so unique and i think too part of the kotaku reaction and this will segue us i think a little bit into our other topic part of the kotaku reaction also is around how gaming is changing socially i think about this all the time you and i have talked about this frame before we started working together we've talked about this at working together more recently we talk about it both casually and professionally and this is the fact that since, to me, the inflection point, it was going to happen eventually. Gaming was going to become more mainstream. Huge inflection point 2017, 2018 with Fortnite and how accessible it became. You could play it on any device, anywhere, mobile, Switch, you know, console, PC, it didn't matter. And, and how gaming is changing. You know, a lot of the people that work, a lot of the people that work in games media, a lot of the people that work in gaming as devs, etc. And a lot of the people that talk about gaming on Twitter, which, you know, is what we're talking about in this discourse, are the most are very hardcore gamers. They live, breathe, sleep, eat video games. It has been a part of their life for many of them, and in the same case for me personally, since I was a child. Some of my earliest memories or video game consoles, PlayStation 1, Game Boy Advance, the Xbox. Like, all of those. Very crucial to my life. And there was a point where that was not socially okay or acceptable, and you were ridiculed for it. You grew up in school, people would make fun of you, you're a nerd, whatever, right? Like, now nerd's a cool word. Great, we've co-opted it to be awesome. I'm glad we're all fucking nerds. Yay for nerds. But there, there's a little bit of trauma, I think, still there that you think in the back of your mind if you're this hardcore gamer. And you've spent half of your life, say you're 30, you've spent like 15 years or 18 years or whatever of it ridiculed for doing this thing as a hobby, right? And being a nerd and being maligned from certain social groups. And now everybody wants to come into your pool. If there's two pools, now everybody wants to come over to yours and hang out because it's cool to do it now, right? Now it's cool to be that. And it's more socially acceptable. It's more mainstream to be a gamer, right? And I'm excited about that. That gets me genuinely happy. A lot of what we're doing on te- in the television front here at Overcome is because of that, because we want to make gaming and storytelling more accessible. But I do think when you start talking about negative feedback and some of the other things that has happened over the past week regarding this and c- criticism of Kotaku, like I've seen a lot of people who are like, they hate games. 
And I don't think that's true. I don't think the people at Kotaku hate games. I think that they like games a lot. I know some of those people. I think they genuinely love games. But I think that they have a different point of view on games than just like an average gamer who doesn't do this for, for a living. Because Kotaku works behind the scenes. They deal with PR people like we were just talking about who are very controlling and exert pressure and blacklist and other things. And so they have a skewed, maybe somewhat jaded perspective on this industry that you don't get as a casual viewer. And I think it's really important to recognize that. But it's not as black and white as they love games, they hate games. You can't just stand everything in games. I really love esports. I'm also one of the loudest, most critical person, and this is what we're going to dive in. I'm one of the most loudest critical people about esports. I and and I'm very loud about it. It's not because I hate esports. It's not because I'm a doomer and I want the industry to fail. It's because I think the critique comes from a place of love. I want it to get better, but that requires people to talk about where it went wrong. Same thing with yeah. games. I I think that there are there are two very distinct flavors of kind of the haterade. There's the actual I'm just I'm just online to be angry. I'm just online to 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 induce rage and to to channel it, and there's no actual rationale behind it. I, I'm just here to to farm clicks and engagements that are totally worthless. You're never going to monetize that those clicks. But there are the people who I mean, and I'm in that same boat of like, dog. I'm more than happy to be exceptionally critical of esports because I fucking love esports. Like I want it to do well, and I want us to 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 figure out what are the the ways in which we can make it grow in a sustainable way, so that everyone that's that's working in it is being able to be paid, the players are are serviced well, and all of that trickles down and and goes to your everyday casual gamer. I think it's awesome when a company says, "Hey, we have." This esports event, and if you if you tune in even a little bit, you get free, you know, in-game currency or or an exclusive skin or what have you. Those are great ways to engage the larger audience. But I'm more than happy to say, hey, wh- why are we paying esports players six figures when they don't do anything? If 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 all of this is marketing, then all of this has to pass through the the marketing lenses. If I'm paying a player six figures, they have to be returning more than that in their investment. I am not just giving them money. I am investing money in this person for them to return that Literally investment in some way. Literally just running a business, by it the is, way. Like, right. This like, is just running you, a business. This is literally, as, as someone who does, you know, is the CEO and runs a business here of, of people, like you have to, in some way, eventually, when you get to scale, you have to be able to say this this employee demonstrates this value. And if they don't, you have to face the, the difficult decision of reassigning them to something where they can produce more value or letting them go. Right. Yep. That literally is just running a business. It doesn't feel great. It is a bad it's a bad way to feel, but that's reality. It you know, directly correlated value that they provide in some way monetarily. Because you gotta keep your business afloat, right? And and I agree with you. Like esports players have it's not even just six figures, seven figures in some instances too, which is like, oh yeah. And then they do Ridiculous. like very little content. They're, like there's just no like competition. Even winning just doesn't drive enough 
no. dollars to make that ec- those economics work. And and I don't I really want to be careful about just like getting into all these weeds. We have past episodes on this. You you, yeah. you can go find them. They're in the we feed. Have plenty of we, we've talked about this episodes. a lot with like Harris Peskin and Devin Nash. There's two uh, two good parter on that. You know, we we've had Ben Goldhaber here. We've had a couple. Ben Goldhaber was here talking about Juked and like the lack of engagement with the esports community. But the reason we're bringing it up here now is this week I wrote a Substack article about a really negative, you know, kind of, it wasn't about this, but it was sparked by a very negative interaction I had with an investor earlier this week that was essentially like not even giving me the time of day because of my association with esports. Not because of the business that we're building here. If you listen to this podcast, you'll know this. We talk a lot about a lot of things that are in esports, video games, music, movies, television, we, you know, anything that nerds in quotes would like, right? Like, which is a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people, huge total addressable market. We've sat there and done the data on it. That's why we feel like strong in our convictions. And I read this article because I had that interaction on Monday night and I just felt so like terrible about, you know, I've spent, I spent seven, six and a half, seven years of my career being an, an esports reporter and beat reporter covering this industry. The last two and a half years of my career, that has pivoted. When I was at Dot Esports, I ran an investigative department. I had six direct reports. Several of those and some of the hires I made were general gaming focused. They had nothing to do with esports. They covered the gaming industry at large. Some of those were esports focused. Some of them, again, I was working across a bunch of different things, high-level content strategy, etc. Here at Overcome, since I founded this company, it has been about making gaming more accessible and then by virtue also nerd culture, you know, defined as geek entertainment. So, you know, Marvel Cinematic Universe, sci-fi television, kind of all these things that we think this audience is also into, as well as the creator economy, because the creator economy has so many different connections to gaming also. Uh, people on YouTube, people on Twitch, etc. It's been about making that actually more accessible to to that mainstream audience, to people who are interested in this space. I've met a lot of these people over the years who are interested, but they have no way into it because it is so insular. The way people talk about video games is so insular, partly because previously it was insular not all that long ago, but things are shifting and we have been shifting with it too. And it's been the core mission of this entire business for two and a half years. This was never, Overcom was never a esports focused media company. We'd be stupid. I've seen so many of those die. We've seen so many of those die. We've talked We've about so many of these the last die. like six months. Yeah, and a lot of them, but they've died year after year and year. That's because the engagement just isn't there. Like we've talked about in some of those past episodes, which we would implore you to go listen to. And so I had this interaction with a potential investor who's endemic to the gaming space and the creator space. And they basically told me like, you know, they didn't even want to take a meeting with me because of my association with these sports. That's what they said indirectly that's paraphrasing but like that's what they meant and so it like it stung all all of monday night and most of tuesday and i felt super compelled to write about it and i did and i wrote about on wednesday i wrote about kind of the fact that you can do all the things that i've tried to do over my career which is be critical. And I linked a lot of those pieces, a lot of that commentary for the past like six years of, Hey, this is where like when people are raising all this money, when people were trying to sell franchise slots or this, you know, this is where I've been critical. I've not been a sycophant for rich people that 
you know, are getting FOMO and wanting to invest. That's not me. It's not what I do. And so it feels really bad to be punished by, you know, somebody not even taking a phone call or a person in person meeting because I'm associated loosely with, and I call them in the piece assholes. And I, I agree with that word. The people who have taken all this venture capital, have taken all this private equity and family office money and have pissed through it in six and a half years. And and that was like the feeling I was trying to shake. I have all, you know, I've spoken up against that, those practices for my entire career. And yet just because I worked in the same industry as those people, I am somehow related and responsible for what they did. And that sucks. That was the, the sucky feeling. I'm feeling a lot better about it now on Friday. But that was the article I wrote. I think both of us had some thoughts and wanted to talk through a little bit of it. This is going on Substack too, so people can listen. Yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of us that we've been bearish on on the amount of money that flowed in, how fast it flowed in for years now. Like, I, I remember being kind of floored by the amount of money that came in during the, the Fortnite era in 2017, 2018, early 2019. Those of us who were who were bearish on it, we we saw this coming, because this is five years out. This just tells us kind of what what a lot of us knew. A lot of people had five years as their expected ROI window. They they put in money in 2017, 2018, 2019, and they said by 2022, 2023, 2024, we're gonna see returns. And every one of them has realized that they put in a lot of money and they're seeing nothing in return. Yep. And 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 a lot of them have have learned that it's because esports is not immediately profitable and that the the way the the kind of monetization pass through works, it's only if those esports people make content. And so they they've started cutting out the middleman and going straight to the content, which right. is it, it's the right move. But a lot of those investors have kind of come at this with a very shallow perspective. They have conflated esports and the rest of gaming together, which has led to exactly this, this, this space where it feels like the people who are in gaming and are trying to stay kind of a little bit away from esports, even if they're still kind of stepping their toe into, into the pool, they're, they're not diving in. They are still being, like I said in our Slack, punished for the sins of our fathers. Like we are, we are being, we are seeing this right now where a lot of people are just struggling to find the funding because everyone is being conflated with esports. And any investor goes to their investor friends who are in esports and asks, hey, how did that investment go? And every one of them says, hey, it was bad. It was real bad. It was like, it was fucked. So I think that. And, and we've talked about this a number of times. This is very much just a market correction as people understand how that monetization works. The question is, are investors willing to understand that gaming is so much larger than esports? It is that upside-down pyramid you wrote about in Substack where like, there are intense numbers of casual gamers. People who... They might not even game a lot, but they are tapped in. They're a little bit plugged in. They know it exists. 
we know plenty of people who, you know, they're in their late 30s, early 40s, and they're they're not playing games, but they're still watching a little bit here and there. They're still occasionally getting hyped up about a game. They might not have time to to play all of Tears of the Kingdom, for example. They sure as shit are going to be in a Twitch channel today watching, watching their Tears favorite. of the Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. And it it might drive them to go and say, fuck it. I'm taking I'm taking a week off work. Can't call me. I'm turning everything off. I'm going off I'm the gonna grid. I'm going to go buy Netflix Switch Kingdom. today and the game, yeah. and I'll see you next week. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I already saw someone that did that today on Twitch or on, on Twitter. They were like, yeah, I wasn't planning on playing it, but I watched some streams yesterday and I just bought a Switch. Like, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's all, everything outside of the game is marketing. And all of that content that people are making for free is all marketing. It's all yep. going to drive new people into your ecosystem. It's going to bring people into that environment. And the more people come in, the better a chance you have for some of those people to convert into people who engage online. And the more that does, it's, it's, it's I don't know what the opposite of a, a vicious cycle is. I feel like a vicious cycle has a negative connotation, but it's, it's this very positive re- affirmation cycle. It's like positive where, reinforcement. Yeah, yeah, like the more people talk about it and, and speak well of it, say, hey, this is Tears of the Kingdom, for example, is, is one of the best games that I've ever played. Like this, this changes everything. If if a thousand people see that and one person who wasn't gonna buy it buys the game, that's a that's a fat dub for Nintendo. They didn't spend a goddamn penny on bad marketing. Yep. And they just made what? Whatever the margin is, let's probably 40 bucks. And I think we've all recognized that the problem with esports, it again, I don't want to rehash. Please go listen to the other episodes. But the problem with esports is there's like an accessibility issue with a lot of these games. They the PC ones in particular are super inaccessible because having a gaming PC is still like a an eight hundred dollar plus endeavor in twenty twenty three. Most people can't afford that. The average consumer. Stop thinking about yourself for a second if you are one of the people that has a gaming PC listening to this. Think about think about someone you know in your life who has less income than you do and that is more representative of the average, in this case, American, but just in the Western world in general, right? Where internet's not great yet. Internet's not great. We don't have PC cafes every half mile like I saw in Seoul when I've been there before. You know, that that's the average person's experience, right? We're talking about consumers at scale. And so that's part of the issue. And there are esports, obviously, that are console games. Like Call of Duty actually is kind of growing right now as an esport, which is super intriguing. I think part of it's because, you know, uh, getting called the latest Call of Duty games a little bit easier and uh, cool. It's still not growing, though, to, and this is my point, it's not growing to its expectation. That was a league that had $25 million buy-ins. The cart was put before the horse. And as someone who was reporting on the cart being put before the horse, I consciously recognized it was time to pivot away from being a part of that industry because every media website that has covered esports in the past, every media company that's covered esports in the past, they get a fraction of the audience that the publishers are getting in their official stuff. 
the you know the LCS uh, Call of Duty League, the Overwatch League, whatever it may be, and we're getting a fraction of the engagement. And the, but the original number, the core number that we are getting, you know, the fraction of is also really small. Mm-hmm. That is not sustainable. And I'm not going to start naming these publications names because I respect people trying to do independent journalism as someone who does it. There are publications that have launched that have been specifically esports focused over the past two years that are independent. They are lucky if they get 50,000 page views a month. Yeah. And that is not sustainable. And the peak, the peak of like esports focused coverage is your ESPN esports of the world, your upcomers, et cetera. And those, and that number for context of someone who worked at ESPN esports is 1 million page views a month plus minus. Right, that's not good enough. The reason Dot Esports and Dexerto, these two other websites that have come from esports, have gone on to be successful by opening the lens Dot Esports by covering general gaming, more gaming broadly, guides, SEO optimized, you know, search engine optimized stuff, and Dexerto by covering creators and creator drama, which is also search engine friendly. They've done so. They're getting you know sixteen to twenty two million page views a month because they opened the lens but back when they were very narrowly focused they were also 1 million plus minus and that is not good enough for economically to maintain one of these media companies and so that's that's where the pivots come from and and some of the negative feedback i got on that article i got a lot of positive feedback and a lot of people just sad that like that's how i feel i'm not it wasn't never in that article I didn't say, I'm quitting esports. No, 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 no. I still feel like a, an altruistic, maybe stupid, altruistic pull to cover the industry. Not, not as much as I used to, but some. But generally, some of the negative feedback I got, well, you know, esports isn't dying. Like, more colleges and more high schools, and I got this from people I respect, more colleges and high schools have programs than ever. And I was just like, that's great, but that doesn't change media engagement that doesn't change pro league engagement and that's what ultimately matters to drive like the highest level of the business so like i hear you maybe in 10 years five to 10 years there will be more enough esports consumers to make this make sense but i don't have five to 10 years in cash just sitting in an account to fund a business you know for five to 10 years i don't think many people do they've got like three to five years to fix it and i don't think this is going to get fixed in three to five years it's going to take a long time this is a big recessionary period for this industry and that's okay. Like I think we both love it. We want to see it come around. But unfortunately, it, it, it's not meet, met the expectations. And all I was doing in that post was just like venting about like, here's, here's where I was at. Before I dive too deep into this, the, the point on uh, accessibility of, of esports, where, yeah, it's hard to get a, a gaming PC. There's a reason Fortnite got really big when it did it was you could get it on your phone the limitation on fortnite was that it's it's still a pretty big game it, it takes a while to download you have to have halfway decent internet to play you know what game is under a gig has a thriving esports scene and has a massive international user base can be played on phones and takes under like yeah because it's so small under 5 to 10 minutes download for most people fucking brawlhalla it's not my favorite game, but I want to shout them out because it's very impressive what they've done. Like, they've, they've made a game that I think is under 500 megabytes. 
very easy to get into, has a lot of depth to it, and it has a thriving esports space. Super accessible and, and very successful. Millions of dollars in, in prizes every year. Just just wanted to shout them out, and, and we can clip this, and I'm sure Brawlhalla would love it, because as someone who is a known hater of Brawlhalla, I can I can even appreciate what they've what they've done for for their community that it it's very very impressive. <sighs> yeah, I there is a balance in reporting esports stuff. I think there is always news in esports, but I think that the vast majority of it is not the esports itself. I think it's the stuff that's adjacent to it or kind of directly outside of it. Because realistically, and I've, I've said this time and time again, the people who are interested in the esports, they're going to go and watch the esports. Or they're going to follow along on, on, on the threads on Twitter or on Reddit. They're going to find the, the condensed version of, of what they're looking for. The reporting in esports that's very important is the financial reporting. It's not even the, the drama reporting. It's, it's like all of that is kind of an auxiliary to, to how it all works and really kind of taps into that idea that, that we are more interested in rage and controversy than actual news. It's the financial news, the stuff that realistically impacts way more than just one team or, or one league. Mm-hmm. You know, esports and, and gaming in general is a space where a rising tide lifts all ships. When one major esports league or, or a, like a notable org crashes, that hurts everyone. Yeah, like CLG shutting down. Tsunami. CLG is one of the, the oldest teams in esports for a lot of people. Like, everyone knows CLG because CLG was one of the first big names in League of Legends, and they were one of the first big names to expand outside of it. When they shut down, the trust in the rest of esports fell. The same is happening in FaZe. FaZe fucked up. FaZe said they were worth more than they are, and now that it's clear that that's, that's not only not true, but the entire company is, is crumbling at the core, it's very clear that esports is not doing great. With Overwatch League, no one knows if it's going to last more than one, maybe two years more. With the amount of money that it went into it, when that ends... Everything will take a hit. Everyone will feel it. Yep. The point of all of this is we need to be investing in different things. We can't put all our eggs into this esports basket because we know esports is the smallest segment of gaming. <laughs> Yeah, I got some good feedback on the pyramid analogy. It's an upside down pyramid. Gaming is at the top. Esports fan is or gamer is at the top. Esports fan is at the bottom. I'm motioning my hands for the audio listeners. And you know, think of it as like a almost like a burger, right? Like there's lettuce, there's you know a meat patty, there's some cheese, there's some you know sauce, whatever it may be, right? All those areas, different layers on that pyramid going all the way down. 
are like you're slowly getting more and more hard game hardcore gamer right you're becoming more of a hardcore gamer you you know gamer i would define as someone who plays video games once a month right like that's at least once a month and that can be mobile right that can be like any mobile game yeah that can be pc console don't matter yeah exactly i would consider yeah exactly somebody that plays candy crush once a month is a gamer i mean the the, and the thing that always strikes me is uh clash of clans and clash royale that's the one where i feel like a lot of people came into the the initial hardcore gamer group saw that and said that's not real gaming that's not real esports but dog they have a lot of money and they they make big esports events the clash royale final invitational every year is a massive event for a mobile game like those things all count they're all real they're all valid yeah and i think again we won't harp it on it a lot but i i just wanted to give a little bit of context to that article i'm not like angry or bitter just like doing what's best for me doing what's best for this company and i think like that's important context here it sucked in the moment i'm over it it's whatever i it sucked in the moment to be like looped in with a bunch of people that did the wrong thing and acted with intent to either enrich themselves or whatever it may be because some of these like esports founders and ceos especially on the team side have made themselves pretty fortunes right they're they're millionaires now when they definitely weren't prior to all of this they've acted stupidly i've tried not over my career to act stupidly and it it just sucked to be looped into it that's it 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 wasn't that deep it's not that deep i don't i don't like i'm not talking about what's going on at like random high school i mean my my alma mater high school has an esports program that's cool i'm happy for them but like i'm not talking about them i'm talking about like professional level and how it relates to media and i just don't think it's worth like being esports focused i don't think it's I've thought about that way for about two and a half years. That was it. That was really it about the article. That's all. Really, all I have to say. I guess I want to. I want to loop one more thing on the this idea that, like high school and and collegiate esports is, you know, it's doing great. I'm sure it is. If we if we look at the sports parallel, and esports loves doing that. They love looking at the sports parallel. It's why Overwatch League exists. Let's look at the sports, the, the, the major leagues. So you got NBA, NFL, MLB. You might count MLS, maybe. But those yeah. are your, your big three. If there's 10 million high school players, that boils down to 1 million who play collegiate, which boils down to a few hundred who play professionally. If we look at the the sports that don't have major professional leagues, they don't get money. <laughs> if the biggest leagues are not doing well, everything below it won't matter. That's right. It's trickle down. It all trickles down. The reason that there are any functioning functioning collegiate and high school leagues is because it makes sense that there's a pro league that you can you can go and and get there. If there's if 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 the stuff at the top starts dying off, everything else falls under it. I hate to be a doomer about it, and I I, I want 
all of those grassroots small communities. I want I want the high school and, and collegiate scenes to to thrive. For them to thrive in the long term, the pro leagues also have to thrive. And we have to figure right. out how that monetization works. I think that's a good note to end it on. I, I like there, you know, I again what we have a love for the game. The, yep. like a, not not actually a game, but like what love for the industry. We wanted to succeed. But well, like, substack ain't you leaving. We're we'll still yeah. be here, still being lovingly critical of esports. Exactly. But hot damn. That criticism think, is, like, is going to, to keep being there. You know, we have to like we have to read the writing on the wall. Yep. And we have to know that like right now there's an issue and like again, we're a startup. We can't sit here and like total our thumbs and be like, yeah, we're gonna brace it through for the next five years. It's like I don't have five years, right? Like it's fine. Gaming right now is having a moment. Gaming is huge. And every single year it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Nerd culture and greater economy are the same. They're also growing, like rapid wildfire. And they need coverage too. They're having an issue with lack of coverage. They're having a lack of content too. A lot of our peers in gaming news and media are out of jobs right now. And they aren't getting new ones because there are no one hiring. And it's not because they were paid absorbing amounts of money. It's just because there are no jobs. Like the industry is in a bad spot. It's got economic issues too. And personally, I'd rather try to solve those at the moment with huge 500 million-ish total addressable market rather than the esports total addressable market, which is small. That's okay. We'll be around. We're going to continue. We pay attention. We can't help ourselves, but that's it. I think we're going to call it the pod there. Thank you for listening today. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled guest programming next week. We'll stay tuned to the Overcome account on Twitter for those guest announcements. If you'd like to join the show live, we should talk about that more. But generally, you know, the show is live when we can, assuming a guest is willing to do this on Twitter. Come ask your audience questions. And so keep keep a tuned Twitter account at Overcome. We're easy to find. So go there. Follow us. Pay attention. We will have guests. We will want people to come and chime in. We love audience questions. We love engagement with the show. And thank you to all the new listeners who have been on the show recently. Uh, we have had a, a influx of downloads over the past week that makes me really excited. A lot of people who are binging the library, which is cool, and we've heard from some of them. So thank you, thank you. Tweet at us. So you know, tell us, tell us what you like about the show. Tell us what you dislike about the show. We we tell like us who the you want on the show. Tell us we'll, who you want on the show too. We'll that that's our damnedest we like to, to make y'all happy. Yeah, yeah. This, I'm glad the show's growing. It's so awesome to get. We got a tweet last week that was like. I'm one of those people. I found the show through this episode and now I'm binging the library and seeing all my interests. And it's like, great. You are the person we like. You're listening to this. Thank you. We love you. We'll be back next week, though, on our regularly scheduled guest programming. For now, though, that's been it from us, from me, from Prem, from the rest of the Overcome team. Thank you all so much. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Enjoy Tears of the Kingdom. We will be too. And we'll see you next week.